The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Our sermon text this morning can be found in Luke chapter 5, verses 33 through 39. Hear the word of the Lord. And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says, the old is good. This is the word of the Lord. Think with me for a minute about the difference between a series of topical sermons and uh, a series working through a book of the Bible. Uh, the advantage of a, a series that works through, the book of the Bi- through a book of the Bible like we're doing with Luke is that we're more likely to touch on most all of the passages. I say most because it's sometimes not literally true that we touch on every single verse. In fact, today I'll have just a little comment on one of the verses in the passage. But we'll, t- we'll touch on most of the passages in a book of the Bible, and we'll see those texts in the context in which they're written and spoken. And the disadvantage of a through-the-book study is that we may neglect the whole counsel of God on any given topic. You get it? We might not be pulling in what the Bible says elsewhere, what Jesus says elsewhere, what the apostles say elsewhere on a given text or topic. The advantage of a topical series, as we did last fall, Strengthened by Grace, is that we're more likely to bring in, kind of like systematic theology, what the whole Bible says, what the broader message of the Bible is on a given topic. Uh, Peter's sermon at Pentecost is a great example of a, of a topical sermon, as is the the book of Hebrews, the whole book is the sermon. And the author of Hebrews is just pulling from the Old Testament in different places to put it together into his topical sermon, which is now a book. And if you did a book series on it, you'd be doing both. <laughs> a book of the Bible and a topical. Uh, the danger of, uh, of a topical series... We used to call this hobby horse preaching in seminary. You just might climb on your favorite texts and just ride them over and over and over and over and over again and you'd neglect the whole counsel of God. So whether a sermon is topical or a book series, they both ought to be done exegetically. The other way I could say it is you could do a topical or an exegetical, no, I didn't say that. You could do a topical series or a book series and not be exegetical. Get it? I heard a sermon on the call of Levi. And the point of the sermon was, we don't like taxes, we don't like the IRS, and we wish they'd get their hands out of our pockets. 
or the, the kid with the lunch, you know. He shares his lunch. Jesus feeds the 5,000. The point of the text, share your lunch. Be a sharing person. It's not an exegetical sermon. So the, what I want to stress is that the opposite of exegesis, which is drawing out of the passage the main thrust of the message is eisegesis, which is putting into the, to the main, putting in your own ideas into the text and saying whatever you want, like about the IRS with Levi. <laughs> so all that is to say, uh, we believe in, ex- I'm just really adding to what Pastor John said last week. We believe in expository exaltation. My point here was the expository part, whether it's topical or book series. And Pastor John's point last week was uh, expository exaltation. We, we so want our preachers, I say plural, it's not just me, our preachers, to lead the people by exegeting the text with exaltation, with worship here that spreads to worship there. And I said all that to tell you this. (laughs) If you would have asked me the top 10 doctrines or passages of the Bible that I thought that Bethlehem needed to hear this last Sunday of April, I wouldn't have said fasting. (laughs) And neither would you have, I don't think. So it's just providential. It's a providential advantage of through the book studies that uh, God in his providence appointed this text for this day on fasting in our series on on Luke, and we're going to look at it. (laughs) And that kind of feels exciting and hopeful to me because it wasn't up my sleeve to talk about fasting today, but I really do have too much to say, and I really really will behave with the time. God has a grace for us in this text. Jesus has a grace for us, for the advancement of our joy in him through fasting. So let's pray for his help. Father in heaven, Lord Jesus, help us with this, this Grace, the spiritual discipline you've given us, fasting. Some of us do it. Some of us do it regularly. Some of us don't do it at all. I pray for grace for all of us. Speak to us now. In Jesus' name, amen. So my aim is that just as you benefit from the other means of grace, that you would avail yourself of fasting as a God-given grace for you, for, the, for your growth in grace and, uh, and growth in satisfaction and in joy, in joy and in, in Jesus. So it, it's a grace for us, for the benefit of our faith. So to say it another way, just as you use the grace of the Word in private Bible reading and in Bible study and in memorization and in preaching, and just as you use the grace of prayer for communion with God alone and in, in pairs and clusters and families and groups and in congregational life. And just as you use the grace of fellowship with one another in friendship and counsel and, and marriage and comfort and encouragement and admonition and fellowship in song, just as you use those means of grace that you might be called by the Lord to use fasting. Fasting. 
as a means of grace as well. That's my aim. In my outline, it's, it's, uh, it's big, broad strokes. The, if I were to outline this passage, which I kind of did, it just begins with a critique from the Pharisees. And then the rest of the text is Jesus' answer to the Pharisees' critique. And it could be broken down into two big chunks. Jesus says, there's a time for feasting. And second thing he says is, there's a time for fasting. So let's look at it. Here's the critique from the Pharisees, verse 33. Now, in the previous passage, the Pharisees have already spoken their disapproval of Jesus for he and his disciples eating and drinking with the tax collectors and sinners at the house of Levi. And so now their critique continues and shifts to fasting. Verse 33. And this is not a question. Right? It's, a, it's a statement. And they said to him, the Pharisees, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. Matthew's gospel and Mark's gospel tell us that the disciples of John the Baptist were asking the same question. So the Pharisees kind of leveraged the questions of John the Baptist and put them together and said, Jesus, how come you and your disciples eat and drink? Jesus' answer here now. He starts with, there's a time for feasting. Verse 34. Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Got the answer in your head? No. Illustration. Imagine a wedding reception at which the bride and groom are at that table right in the middle and the bridal party's there and the friends and family are gathered and the father of the bride takes the microphone and he says, in honor of this marital union between this bride and this groom for which we have waited so long, I declare a fast. There will be no feasting. There will be no dancing. There will be no music. There will be no celebration today. It's time to fast. Jesus says, no, 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 no. The bridegroom is here, is what Jesus says. And then that immediately pushes us into, well, who is the bridegroom? <laughs> who is the bridegroom? And it was John the Baptist who first, upon his seeing Jesus, identified Jesus as, that's the bridegroom. So it's kind of interesting that the disciples of John the Baptist are coming, and Jesus answers with bridegroom language. Verse 38. Uh, excuse me, this is John three thirty-eight, where John the Baptist, upon seeing Jesus, says this to the crowd and his disciples, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. He's looking at Jesus and he's saying, there's the bridegroom. It's not me. John's task was to prepare the way for the Lord. And John is realizing that his task is done. The Lord has come for his people. The bridegroom has come for his people in the person of Jesus to establish a new covenant with his people. 
And the new covenant was promised in the Old Testament. And, and this language of husband and wife, bride and bridegroom is, is all over the Old Testament. I mean, in Jeremiah 31, one of the great texts on the new covenant, God explains that his people, Israel and Judah, broke the old covenant, quote, though I was their husband. And then God declares, for this is the covenant that I will make. It's a new covenant. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people and I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sins no more. That's the new covenant relationship of the bridegroom with his bride that Jesus has come to die to establish. The new covenant, (laughs) I, I love Hosea's description as well. God says this through Hosea. Bridegroom, bride, the Lord Jesus and his people, the church, new covenant. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and in steadfast love and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. New covenant. That's what Jesus has come to establish. This is what the bridegroom has come to die to establish. And so John the Baptist sees this and says, that's the bridegroom. He's come to establish this new covenant. And one of the things I love about the the passage in in John 3 is, I don't know what you think about John the Baptist. You know, he's kind of weird. He he really is, you know, kind of a long-haired, weird guy, ascetic. He, uh, you know, he eats locusts and wild honey, and he wears itchy clothing. Um... So you get, you get John the Baptist. You know, this, in my picture, is, it's, he's not a happy man. He, 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 repent! He, the, the, you know, this is... And, and, I, and I love it that, that here's what John goes on to say, John the Baptist in John 3. He describes himself as the best man at the wedding. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him. And he rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase and I must decrease. And do you see what strikes me there is this itchy, bug-eating John the Baptist is celebrating. The bridegroom has come. Jesus says, uh, the bridegroom has come. It's not time to fast. Even John the Baptist is celebrating. It's time to feast. That's why Jesus and his disciples eat (laughs) and drink. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. The bridegroom has come. But then Jesus goes on to say that there is a time for fasting. Let me begin with 
an illustration. I may have told you part of this before, or all of this before. I'm going to just tell you part of it right now. Kathy and I were invited to a Somali wedding reception a few years ago by a Somali friend. And uh, the cultural differences between American culture and Somali culture were apparent, particularly in reference to time. Uh, Together with our Somali friend, we arrived at, it was in a ballroom at one of the hotels out by the Mall of America. And the ballroom probably held two or three hundred people. So we arrived at eight o'clock as invited, and we were almost the only people there. (laughs) And throughout the evening, more and more people came, but there was no bride and there was no bridegroom. (laughs) And the American caterers were getting increasingly nervous as time went on. It was turkey, I remember, and the turkey's getting drier and drier and drier and drier. And so 8 8 o'clock, 8.30, 9 o'clock, 9.30, 10 o'clock, other guests are coming, but again, the bride and the bridegroom are there. And the, uh, the caterer wanted to just break out and say, let's just eat. Let's just eat. Who cares? It doesn't work. It's not time to eat. How do you eat at a wedding reception when there's no bride and groom? Verse 35. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast in those days. Interesting here that Jesus doesn't command his disciples to fast here or anywhere else. He doesn't say, if you fast here. Rather, he he knows ahead of time that his disciples will fast when the time comes. He assumes it. He foreknows it. Simply says, "Um, then they will fast in those days. When? When the bridegroom is taken away. When's that? When's that? I think it's fairly simple to identify two times when Jesus is away from his people. And I don't think I need to choose between the two. I think I can say both and. At the very least, Jesus refers to when he was arrested and crucified. He was buried, died and was buried. John 16, 20, Jesus says to the disciples, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament and the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, and your sorrow will be turned to joy. I mean, the disciples did not run out and feast after Jesus died on Good Friday, or on Saturday, or on Sunday, till they heard the news, and actually Jesus, (laughs) Jesus cooked the fish, and they ate together. He ate together with some of his disciples. So that's an easy one to see, but Jesus rose from the dead. They ate together. But then, after 40 days, Jesus ascended to heaven. He departed again. And so it seems most applicable to us that Jesus is telling us and all the disciples for the last 2,000 years that when he is away, having ascended to the right hand of God, then you'll fast. 
Seems quite natural to me. Because although he's with us always with the gift and presence of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul also acknowledges that, well, while we are here, we're away from the Lord. So, the early church has fasted uh, through the centuries. And we can see it as early as the, as the book of Acts. In Acts 13, while the leaders of uh, the Antioch church were worshiping the Lord and praying and fasting, the Lord spoke. And said, set apart Paul and Barnabas for the work to which I've called them. And they laid their hands on them. And after fasting and praying, they sent them out. And they changed the world. They changed world history with the gospel. So the early church fasted, Acts 13. They fast again, as we can see in Acts 14. Or Paul says, he's just talking about the routine appointment of elders in every church. Acts 14, 23. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So the early church is fasting and the church for centuries, for the last 2,000 years, has embraced fasting as a means of grace. Jesus adds to this, this parable, these parables of the new and the old in verses 36 through 39. He's talking about a, a time for fasting, and he, and he brings in these two parables. And what's interesting is in these four verses, the word new is mentioned seven times. And the word old is mentioned five times. <laughs> so you know, let's pay attention to these words. Uh, verse 36. But garment. This parable of the garment. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece of new, uh, excuse me, a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new. And the piece from the new will not match the old. What's the point? You can't repair a torn garment, a torn old garment by putting on a new patch. It won't match and it'll tear away because the new one will shrink. It won't be the same. That's the point. And again, similar parable. Verse 37, this time, wine and wineskins. Verse 37, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But the new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. So everybody knew this in Jesus' time. New, new wine expanded as it fermented, and to put new wine in an old, dried-up, cracked, <laughs> stretched-out wineskin wouldn't work. It, it would bust, and it would spill all over the place. No, 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 no. New wine belonged in new wineskins, not in old. What's his point? What's his point? You cannot put the new into or onto the old. Not with garment cloth, 
not with wineskin, not with wine and wineskins. Stretch it out more now. The garment of fasting of the old covenant cannot be patched into the cloth of the new covenant. Or I could say it the other way. The new kind of fasting that belongs to the new covenant cannot be patched onto the old covenant. It won't work. And likewise, the wineskins, excuse me, the wine, the new wine of fasting in the old, excuse me, in the new covenant cannot be poured into the old wineskins of the old covenant. It won't work. It will not work. So, what Jesus is saying is there's a time to fast and it won't be like fasting in the old covenant. It'll be radically different. Why? Because of the new covenant. It'll be done with assurance of God's favor. It'll be done resting on the finished work of Christ. It'll be done knowing that God is for us and not against us. It'll be done with the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit within us, prompting our prayers. It won't be done for self-exaltation and boasting because our boast is in the Lord. It'll be done in a new way. So he says, in fact, then he he adds this little verse. This is the verse I'm not going to say much about. Verse 39, he says, No one after drinking old wine desires new. For he says, the old is good. What's his point there? You know what I think his point is? It's an ironic rebuke of the Pharisees. He's saying, you guys are so enamored with the old wine of the old covenant that you don't even have an appetite for the new wine of the new covenant that God promised and is here right before you. You don't even want to taste it. It's a rebuke. So where are we? Uh, My aim in this message is that we might be taught and motivated and encouraged to avail ourselves of fasting as a God-given means of grace to grow in our relationship with Christ and in our satisfaction and in our, in, in our experience with Him. And we do know. We, 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 you have to hang on to this new and old thing. Our fasting is going to be different from the fasting of the old covenant. And I already reviewed some of that. We, we don't fast to pay God to earn his favor. His favor has been accomplished for us by the payment of Christ, his death for us, and on. It's it's just, our fasting will be from this settled marital relationship that we have with God through Christ Jesus. And we will pursue Jesus more, more than the things that we might pursue as we eat and drink Now, I have to confess that I fasted occasionally here and there, but the most regular fasting I've ever done was here at Bethlehem 
part of this Bethlehem community. When we would, we, we, we did this corporately. I mean, from the elders, through the elders, called the people. We're going to set aside the first Tuesday of every month as a first Tuesday fast. And you don't have to tell anybody about it, but at the lunch hour, we're, we're asking, suggesting that you forego food during that lunch hour and rather spend that time with the Lord. And as a staff, we did it together in one of the first floor rooms and we would, we would sing together, we would worship, and we would look into the word and then we would pray. And uh, that's the most consistent fasting I've ever done. And right now, I'm, I'm not calling for that because I think that ought to come through the elders and, and at appropriate points that, that the Lord would lead us into when is the right time to call for a corporate kind of fast. It could be a, a one-off, it might be an occasion in the church where we'd say, please fast, let's, let's, together let's fast about this. Or it could be a, a rhythm of fasting like this. But my burden right now this morning is that you would consider this personally. I mean, fasting, Jesus is teaching elsewhere. Is, 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 uh, he has more to say about fasting before men. And uh, so there's a, a big piece of fasting that's between you and the Lord. So I'm, I'm calling you to consider this. You and the Lord. Consider what the Lord is calling you to do. I mean, in the Bible, I'll give you a quick review. People fasted, God's people fasted for a whole range of reasons. All expressions of foregoing our physical need in order to pursue our spiritual need in God. God's people fasted for a dedicated time of worship and prayer and communion with God. That one runs through them all. God's people fasted and prayed for God's help and power. God's people prayed for guidance. God's people prayed, like I said, for the appointment of leaders and sending out leaders. God's people prayed for comfort in grief. God's people prayed for repentance and God's forgiveness for their sins. Some of you may be curious to learn more about fasting. And uh, I'll mention four books. I actually referred to all of them this week in preparation for this message. But there's so much more in every one of them than I was able to put into this message. Four books that will all review biblical foundations for fasting and give you practical practical considerations about fasting. Three general books on spiritual disciplines. Uh, the Habits of Grace by David Mathis. Spiritual Disciplines by Don Whitney. The Celebration of Discipline, which is probably now a modern classic, by uh, Richard Foster. Or if you want a whole book on fasting, Pastor John wrote a whole book on fasting, A Hunger for God. And our bookstore, I know, has some of those in stock right now. So if you want to read more, read more. Read more. But others of you might be more of the type to just dive in. <laughs> right? Like, okay, like enough looking at the water. 
let me get in there. And uh, I do need to say, like, fasting's not for everyone. Some might have medical reasons not to fast. I'll let you sort that out. But if you're going to dive right in by faith, here's what I'd say. Here's my advice. Start by skipping a meal. And you know what? This is kind of surprising for me the first time I realized that. If you skip two meals, you fasted for 24 hours. Right? You skip breakfast, you skip lunch. Well, last time I ate was dinner to dinner. Um, start, start small, start there. Drink water. And contrary to popular opinion or what your brain might tell you, you will not die if you skip a turkey sandwich at lunchtime. I mean, Paul talks about mastering his body so that nothing has mastery over him. So, consider fasting. I'll give you a, a list. The, the list grew. It's, it's kind of interesting. I had five, and then, oh, I got six. Oh, I got seven. Oh, I got eight. <laughs> Here we go. Consider fasting and praying because You've tasted that the Lord is good and you want to taste more. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul longs for you, O Lord, more than my Big Mac. Fast and pray because you need God's guidance more than you need to eat lunch or you need God's comfort more than you need to eat more than you need the comfort of food. Fast and pray for God's deliverance and power. You know, my mind ran to Mark nine twenty nine, where the disciples come to Jesus and they say, how come we couldn't cast out this demon? And Jesus, well, this, Jesus says, well, this kind can only be driven out by much prayer. And he says, scat, and it's gone. <laughs> Fast and pray for the success of Cindy McLaughlin's brain surgery tomorrow morning. She's watching. Consider, she's in the hospital right now at Abbott. She found, out, found it two days ago, maybe Friday night, Saturday morning. She's got a brain tumor. And they said, okay, we're going to get it Monday morning. She's not sitting in her normal spot. Fast and pray for the success of Cindy McLaughlin's brain surgery tomorrow morning. Or fast and pray for God to work in the lives of other people, for your children and your spouse, your friends, your family members, other believers, for this church. Or fast and pray for God to sovereignly intervene in the state of Minnesota in the wake of laws aggressively promoting abortion and the recent law that permits the state to take children from parents who refuse puberty blockers and mutilation for their children. Fast and pray about that. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, 
but against principalities and powers of this present darkness, take up the sword of the Spirit, praying. Ephesians 6. Pray, fast and pray for the advance of the gospel of the kingdom here and all around the world. Fast and pray for God to deliver Christians from imprisonment in places like Pakistan and Afghanistan and other places. Fast and pray for God to stop the weekly slaughter of Christians around the world in places like Nigeria. I don't know if you get these mailings, but I do. Another, another 40 Christians killed in Nigeria. And another, and another, and another. And lastly... Fast and pray for the coming of the Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. Come and inaugurate the wedding feast. Come and join us as your bride. And and start the music and start the dancing and start the feasting because then then the time of fasting will be over. And it will be feasting for all eternity. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this word of yours appointed for this day in the Gospel of Luke for our good, for our joy, for our communion with you, for our benefit, for our sanctification, for your impact in our families and in our church and in our state and in our world. Lead us, speak to us, change us, I pray. Grant new measures of desire and motivation, grace that we might take advantage of this particular means of grace, fasting, that we might fast and pray in new measures and you might answer the prayers of your people in new measures for our joy and for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others. But please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720-13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.